people's flag is deepest red, it shrouded oft our martyr dead. And there their limbs grew stiff and cold, their heart's blood dyed its every fold. Then raised the scarlet standard high, within its shade we live and die. Cowards flinch and traitors sneer. We'll keep the red flag flying here. Wednesday night, March 29, 1933, Great Strand Street, Dublin. Early in March 1933, an organisation calling themselves the Revolutionary Workers' Groups rented Number 64 Great Strand Street as a headquarters. The building was attacked on Monday night, March 27th. Johnny Nolan. On a Monday, towards the end of March of 1933, I was in the Connolly House... Uh, in the in the in the, at the night time, and I would put the time at around about nine thirty. When I heard some noisy voices and what appeared to be a crowd, and I went out to see what was happening, and uh, the a number of people, probably a couple of hundred, uh, were approaching us. Practically, they were about to enter the house and I closed the door. I would say barely in time from some of them actually entering. Their genital demeanour was one of hostility. They proceeded to break window, the windows in the lower portion of the premises and some books and literature were taken out, put on the road and burned. The uh, police arrived on the scene and uh, they were not friendly to the occupants and uh, other than sort of uh, ordering rather than pushing away, ordering the crowd which had gathered in the street to move away, they took no other action. There was a strong force of police present under Chief Superintendent Clark who told an Irish Times reporter that the attack was the work of a disorderly mob and that the guards were doing their utmost to protect the property in the neighbourhood. On Tuesday 28th, small groups of men stood around the street watching the building. The attack was renewed on Tuesday night. People began to gather in the street 
uh, from the early part of the day, some indicating his hostility, others there out of curiosity. The Towards the evening, the crowds got larger and uh, there was um, shout, shouting, catcalling, name-calling and abuse generally at the occupants of the house. Uh, there was some stone-throwing uh, both inside, from inside the house and also towards the house. Most of the windows in the building were smashed as a result of this activity. Uh, the, at the end of the second night, the building was still in, occupied by the members of the party and those who had come along to support. But after midnight, the street became reasonably quiet. One of those who came to the defence of Connolly House was Charlie Gilmore. Some of us of the South County Battalion of the IRA were having a meeting in a little cottage at Classen's Bridge, Milltown. Kenny's was the name of them. They were Republicans anyway. And my brother Harry, who happened to be Commandant of the South Dublin Battalion and was due there at this meeting, trying to start something on the grounds of Sarah, a political background, if you like, to the what we were supposed to be fighting about. He came in uh, pretty well battered and green in the face. He had been attacked and knocked down, I think, in Dame Street by some, uh, well, you could call it a mob or the irate populace, depending what side your sympathies were. But anyway, he told us that Connolly House, in which some friends of ours were, was being attacked, had been attacked last night and was being attacked and was liable to be burnt down or, anyway, badly attacked again this particular night. And he said, any of you who want to go in there to protect the people in it are free to do so but not officially as Republican Army people. Now, those are more or less the words I remember. And I went in that evening, I think it was, without any arms, and there was a crowd rushing up and down the street singing uh, of a mixture of the usual soldier's language mixed with the, the Halbert Connolly and Faith of Our Fathers and the whole work was more or less mixed up. And they were oh, smashing up Connolly House from the front windows and such had been smashed, of course. But there was a sort of hooligan element mixed up with all sorts of... Uh, I suppose they were, you could call them religious maniacs, but... Maybe they weren't maniacs, some of them were probably decent people. But I walked up and down to be recognised in front of the windows, and then somebody, when I was approaching it again, opened the door, let me in and shut it again. Throughout Wednesday, the numbers on the streets increased, and by Wednesday night had swelled to thousands. The number inside was about 30. The final assault took place on Wednesday night, March 29th, 1933. Tommy Kelly, confraternity member. Well, 
there was a, one of the clergymen, uh, Father Canini, his name was, he was a redemptist father, and uh, he, he usually gave very severe sermons. As a matter of fact, when, when the mission would be over in the night time, you'd hear the people coming out telling, saying to one another that he'd put the fear of God in your heart and he'd put the wind up in all of this. But that particular night, he happened to preach on communism and he come out in the sermon very strongly against the communism. But at the same time, he didn't entice or invite anybody to take any part in marches or any disturbance of any description. And when the mission was over, myself and all the other brothers of the conference change proceeded up to the conference change room and we took off the robes off and got into our own plain clothes and went down. And when we went down, we discovered that all the men that was in the mission in the property that night was being formed into groups of fours, four marching order in other words. And when they got them into fours, they gave the order to move off. And as they were moving off, they had to pass the Workers' Union of Ireland Hall, Unity Hall, they call it, 31 Marlborough Street. And, of course, at that time, it was rumoured that Jim Nagam was a communist. Of course, communism was a dirty word. And as they passed Unity Hall, some of the crowd that was marching threw some bricks or other missiles, and they broke several panes of glass. And then they went marched on straight down to Stan Street. And they were ex- seemingly they were expecting the crowd to come because they had the door closed and everything. They were, in other words, they were prepared. Well, I couldn't get near the door because I wasn't up near the front. I was mid, midways down in the crowd. Paddy Hewis, and he was one of the leaders with myself that attacked the hall in on the Wednesday night with the members of the confraternity. And all the parishioners, the men... There was there men worked down the quays, there was men worked in offices, there was guard, ex-guards who were in civilian clothes, who was attending a retreat out of Store Street and out of Forgiven Street. They were all there at the meeting and they were very high-strung about communists at the particular time because the priests preached from the pulpit very strongly against uh, the communists. Uh, the publicity on the, ne- on the on the third morning was greater than on the uh, earlier previous day, <clears throat> and uh, really the there were many thousands of people, not merely in the Strand Street. They were in the side streets, and also out on the quays. Um, <clears throat> The occupants of the house that night uh, were in larger numbers than on the previous two nights. Um, Some people had come along uh, to publicly demonstrate their sympathies uh, with the people who were in the building, uh, such as Mrs. Hannah Shee Scaffington, Mrs. Lil O'Donnell, that's the wife of, of... Father O'Donnell and Dr. McCormack. The uh, battling between those outside and those inside became fiercer, and uh, quite a number of the people on the outside were injured by stone throwing. 
Um, <clears throat> not many of those inside were injured. But the main action and the main defence took place from upstairs because it, it was virtually an attack from both sides of Strand Street. Looking out onto Strand Street here now, the crowd surged up from the left here and from my right from Capel Street. Of course, it was an old building. As you know yourself, it's a long number of years ago, over 40 years ago. And I'm walking up now on stone floors, stone steps. And in those days, of course, it was wooden. And it was an old building, of course. A bit rickety, a bit more like a tenement. You had a fairly wide expanse from people coming up, good wide view and a good wide vision of the fence also. You could see them coming up from the left, looking straight out onto Stancy, as I said to you earlier. You could see them from the left and you could see them from your right, coming down from the Cable Street direction. And from that, this was a real vantage position. Although there was also, on the next floor, there was also a number of other fellows operating from there. Well, there was stones and there was articles of furniture were pitched out. Everything that we could. I think a piano actually was thrown up. Yes, that's true, it was. Indeed, I remember the fellow who originated the idea, get it out and throw it at them. As more or less, it was a frightening gesture to try to frighten off people. Although it's very difficult to frighten off people, except the people who are in the immediate front. Naturally, the people who are in the front line are the people who really see the danger. The people who are surging behind don't see the dangers. Uh, they keep surging on all the time, but if the people who are actually in the front r- ranks, they really saw the danger and they were trying to keep back. Well, but at the same time, there were some very determined people in the ranks, and I can visualize and remember them to this very day, the way they would surge forward and fire things up, stones, everything. I had a gun under those circumstances. I did not fire at people, but I fired at near to them so as to uh, cause a ricochet of plaster and so on, which, which somebody may have been hit for all I know. Towards the end, the place was set on fire from down here. Now, you see this door here on the right? Well, this led into the bedding and furniture factory, and it was there where... Uh, certain leaders of the crowd had got in and they had set fire, they set fire to this and they were able to get the bedding and all this highly combustible furniture material and get it towards the door and that whole place was a a massive burning inferno I remember now vividly today the huge flames as they engulfed the whole of this factory because I happened to be on, I came down with three other fellows three or four other fellows down to this floor. When the, when it started, when the fire started, we were sent down to see if we could put it out. Well, we got up to the third floor, and by the time we got up to the third floor, where there had been a lot of, uh, a number of fellows, there was about 23 or 24 in the building altogether on the last night, uh, I found, when we got up there, we found that nearly everybody was gone I, at, at the last moment, and we were the last in the building. And we uh, all went out went up to the very, very top and broke out through the window. There was somebody waiting there to help lift us up because it was very difficult. It was quite a height from the floor to the actual roof. We crept up from the top of Connolly House, just over there. We moved over to, on a little sort of a a V-shaped roof, and we moved over there towards a a safer part of the building to get away because Connolly House, the roof of Connolly House, was kind of cut off and it was a rather nerve-wracking moving across this little V-shaped building and you could look down and you could see all the surging crowds down below 
the police and the fire brigade. As we got near the end of the V, there was somebody ready there to grab each one of us as we came, and we were pulled over the last bit of the roof. It would have been a very simple thing to have toppled over right down onto the street. There was about 12 or 14 of us decided to go down Tabby Street trying to get in the back way. We got into Squares Yard. And when we got to Squares Yard, we went to a sort of a stairs and crossed a small roof into Strand Street. And when we got in, there was no one in this room. There was The ledgers were on the table. And I got the, one of the ledgers and held on to it. But uh, during that time, I saw this fella fall into the roof in score, into Squares Yard. And I, I could swear he, he, he fell onto a saw a bench and uh, of course at this time I was I'd have been hit with a brick and the blood was pouring down on my head but I held on to the ledger and uh, someone said you should go to the hospital come out of the yard I was brought away to the jail still with the ledger at the ring said when he asked what happened I said I got a bang of a brick during the storms up there and he said well that's a star in your crown in heaven well it's still there that star when seen yesterday, Conley Hall had all the appearance of having been wrecked by an explosion. Every pane of glass in the building was shattered, even the window frames being smashed, while inside the destruction was complete. The crowd which had succeeded in breaking into the building had done their work in the most thorough fashion, and everything that could be broken was broken. What was it all about? Well, those on the street ranged from the animal gang to civil servants. In fact, one of those arrested and charged with disturbing the peace was a civil servant. The organisations represented outside would include the Confraternities, St. Patrick's Anti-Communist League, the CYMS and the newly formed Army Comrades Association. Those inside the House included well-known left-wing Republicans like the Gilmores and Frank Ryan, and women like Mrs. Hannah Sheehy Skeffington and Dr. McCormack, liberals by today's standards. But Connolly House was the headquarters of the revolutionary workers' groups. What was the revolutionary workers' groups? Johnny Nolan, executive member, Communist Party of Ireland. The revolutionary workers' groups was formed in 1930 as a result of, from a conference of delegates uh, from different parts of the country. Belfast would have been included, as well as um, Cork, Derry, Leitrim, Longford, and uh, a couple of parts of Kilkenny, a couple of areas in Kilkenny. Their aim was to prepare for the formation of a Communist Party in Ireland. Their first action was to launch a weekly newspaper called the Irish Workers' Voice. That started in May of 19. 30, and it continued for six years. The um, aims of the revolution workers' groups uh, corresponded with the general aims of the international communist movement. It was a programme based upon the socialist principles of James Connolly. In March of 1933, what was the strength of the party? It would be in the region of two to 
200 to 250. And yet there would have there there would seem to have been a very strong campaign mounted against the party at that time. There was a general campaign throughout the country against communism in general. It was a reflection of the then worldwide campaign against communism uh, with, of course, its local variations. Uh, the church, Catholic church leaders were very much prominent uh, in this campaign as well as spokesmen of the communal organization. Do you think in some way they overreacted to the party? They, I'm quite sure, they overreacted, but they were not concerned to hurt the party as such, but rather to inflame uh, the genital body of workers from being identified with anything militant or progressive. In other words, they were hitting higher than just the communist movement. They were precipitating or creating a state of mind to prevent the emergence of a strong labor movement in genital. How dangerous to the establishment uh, were the revolutionary workers' groups? Uh, in terms of numbers and in terms of influence, they were not an immediate uh, danger or menace to the established society of the time. And most, the government of the day, easily recognised that. And I think even those who were most vociferous in their propaganda, likewise, but they were likewise appreciated that by itself it was not an immediate challenge to the established order, but they were looking ahead to the influences that might exert uh, in the minds of workers. The Irish Press, March 29, 1933. Attacks. We are sure no Irish Catholic takes pride in the events of the last few days in Dublin. That a crowd singing, God bless our Pope, should smash in the windows of buildings may be mistaken by the demonstrators for Catholic action. But it is poles apart from what these great words mean. If the people who are being attacked are guilty of any offence against the law, they can safely be left to the state to deal with. If they hold public meetings and offend the feelings of their audiences so deeply as to stir up spontaneous anger against them, then they cannot expect to be listened to and are in grave danger of suffering at the hands of irate crowds. But it is an entirely different matter when organised groups go through the city attacking buildings and places which house those whom they dislike. It merely ends in the spectacle of one group of Catholic Irishmen, the police, being forced to disperse another group of Catholic Irishmen, the demonstrators. John Swift, former General Secretary of the Baker's Union, had a ringside seat. It was generally known that uh, the attacks uh, on uh, not only Conley House but uh, also on the premises of the Workers' Union of Ireland in Marlborough Street 
and the Labour College of the Labour Party, it was a type two. They were all regarded as uh, propagating communism. And uh, just before the attack, when Lent started, uh, the bishops' pastorals, nearly all of them, were very strongly anti-communist, including uh, Cardinal Mike Rowley at the time. His uh, uh, pastoral at the time was strongly anti-communist and called for a common front against communism. Cardinal McRory, primate of all Ireland, has issued a solemn warning against communism and called for a solid Irish front to oppose those enemies of God who pose as the friends of man. His Eminence, who was preaching in Armagh Cathedral on St. Patrick's Day, referred to the deliberate and systematic movement starting from Russia but aiming at becoming a worldwide movement to wipe out from men's minds and hearts all belief in God and in the future life. Let, he said, their agents, whether Irish or foreign, be given to understand from the start that there is no room for them or their blasphemies among the children of St. Patrick. There was an anti-communist hysteria in the country at the time, and side by side with it, a religious hysteria. In 1932, an event took place the importance of which has never been fully analysed. Jerry Brady is a retired civil servant and a student of church history. On the Sunday, the 26th of June of the previous year, 1932, over a million people had attended the concluding high mass of the Eucharistic Congress in, in, uh, in the Phoenix Park. Now, this is something which boggles the imagination today, that over a million should have attended this function. The re- contemporary report uh, indicates that there were 20,000 stewards uh, 17,000 people were in, were in what they call the reserved enclosure. Nine cardinals, including the papal legate, attended this thing. And this uh, uh, took all day long on a Sunday. They had started gathering in the Phoenix Park with General O'Duffy, uh, the well-known figure afterwards in connection with the Spanish Civil War and the Blue Shirts. He was in charge of the stewarding arrangements. They started gathering at dawn in the Phoenix Park that day. And the whole uh, day culminated with a solemn benediction at 7 o'clock on O'Connell Bridge. Now, you can imagine the, the sort of atmosphere that ran through a city which had seen the like of this. And, of course, the churches in those days were packed. I myself recall as a youngster on Sunday nights in the churches that the, the, the sermon uh, was the big thing. It was a, a great theatrical performance. These men were very eloquent preachers and they had very receptive audiences. And their influence among the people of the city, especially the religious order priests, their influence was enormous. And I should imagine that uh, such was the um, totalitarian orthodoxy of the time, as we used to think of it, that given any sort of a hint of displeasure uh, on the part of the church authorities uh, about any group in the city, that uh, action would have followed very rapidly on uh, receiving such a a hint. And this is, in fact, what may have happened in uh, relation to Stan Street. How does the church view the events of March 1933 today? Father Michael Sweetman, S.J. This was that this was the normal kind of attitude of the time. I'd consider that it's abnormal to tolerate uh, people who are undermining what you consider your position, and it was an intolerant period, you know, in this way that the church and most um, political opinion was of the kind that we're right and um, the others are wrong. 
And so when there was an appearance of a subversive and new and um, what was considered rightly and wrongly, I suppose, a dangerous new uh, thinking coming in, there was a very strong reaction against it. Of course, there was a very strong Catholic reaction against communism in the 30s. You, you yourself would hardly justify that type of attitude. No, and I think strictly from the church point of view, uh, things have changed a lot. I'd look on the people who took that kind of action. They were uh, a type of political Catholic, you know, who considered that the church or a Catholic state had the right, even the obligation, to vigorously suppress error, immorality and anything like that, you know, that the state should take over and stop it happening. And if they looked on the communist position as just erroneous, even that would have given them, in their thinking at the time, the right to suppress them. And I'm afraid to a fringe element the right to manhandle them. There would seem to have been uh, a certain hysteria in the in the air at the time. I do think that was a, a rather false atmosphere at the time. That concentration of um, opposition to a movement that really was, as you say, a very small, infinitesimal in the causing of any of the troubles that were in existence in Ireland at the time. You know, they would have been better employed in in, um, remedying other social evils and so on. The Standard, an Irish organ of Catholic opinion. The communist policy in Ireland exposed. Secret Red Protocol. Bolshevist plans to found an Irish communist party. Their political report. A full statement of the aims and objects of the agitators who have been at work in this country spreading communist propaganda is provided in the reports on the political situation which were discussed at a meeting of communists in Dublin on March 26th. These reports are dealt with by our special representative in the following article and are the subject of editorial comment on page 10. Continuing its work of keeping the Catholics of Ireland informed of the aims and activities of the agents of Moscow in their midst, the standard hopes that true Catholic action and state action, if necessary, rather than mob violence, will be used to prevent the formation of a communist party in this Catholic land and to drive the menace of Moscow from our shores. In retrospect, would you say that it was not a very... Good time for the church. Ah, no, it wasn't a good time. But I think it was the kind of thing that uh, was wrong and kept us in a backward state from the democratic point of view. That we weren't yet anything like able to tolerate difference of opinion and to hope to argue and persuade rather than just um, hammer the opponent, you know. Padre O'Curry, former editor of the Catholic Standard, was working for the Irish press in March 1933. From the windows of the press, he watched the flames from Connolly House. There was a very big crowd at this fire, and there was some vague talk 
about the Pro Cathedral, that they were coming from the Pro Cathedral. Well, this sounded a bit odd to me. I brought these later pieces up to the editor, Frank Gallagher, and he said a thing which long afterwards struck me as very far-seeing. The Nazis had just... I don't think they had yet come to power in Germany, but they were coming up to look pretty powerful, and they were uh, carrying on their campaign against the Jews, and uh, Frank Gallagher said to me, it's the communists tonight. If we're not careful, it will be the Jews next. What were your own feelings at the time when you did know, when you knew the whole facts? I felt that this was a, a dangerous tendency. If you could get people going, wrecking buildings and setting fire to buildings and generally acting more or less like the way the brown shirts were acting in Berlin at that time. If you were to blame somebody and for what happened, who would you blame? Um, I would blame undoubtedly the... Um, I must blame the activities of the newspapers of the day who by their headline material uh, inflamed opinion against communism and all things radical and progressive. An editorial in the Irish Rosary in 1933, in July. Anti-Christmas carnivals and anti-Easter campaigns are familiar to all students of Soviet Russia. Every kind of blasphemous rivalry is left loose in the streets, theatres and cinemas, under the protection of the terrorist police. Christmas shop windows show the communist worker kicking downstairs a figure representing God. Torchlight processions carry out the burial of religion. Prizes are offered for the best atheist one-act play, ridiculing Christmas. Three hundred anti-God brigades who had received special training were dispatched into the Leningrad territory, and all the five skating rinks of Moscow were given up to anti-religious ice carnivals at which clowns represented priests. Forty-three years later, how do the protagonists see the events? Well, uh, I am and I am, because after all, uh, the way I look at it, if you, if you want to be a communist, you can be a communist, it's your rights, providing you don't interfere with anybody else. You don't, don't interfere with the church or anything else. You can carry on your comments, providing you don't hurt anybody. Well, I, I think it was the best thing we ever done to uh, attack the hall and get rid of the commoners while I was in the bud. Because at that particular time, they were getting very strong. I know, know that very well because I was in the church and spent most of my time in the Procatillo and the complaints you were getting 
about commoners and people preaching it, which there were pre- preaching it in the, in the streets and the meetings and all that. When a man got up to preach communism, he was a communist agent, he was an agent, he was from Russia somewhere. They were Dublin men, but they were, you might have said they were agent. They, they must have been getting paid, they weren't doing it for nothing. Although the, they were the animal gang, there was a, there was, there were a, a good lot of... Uh, the, they weren't as bad as people put them down as being the animals. They were not animals, they were human beings, and they were all at the retreat that night. As uh, one of the missioners said... When he looked out at the congregation of the Procatilas this particular night and saw all the men there, I hear them saying it in Father Keneally, you need not be afraid of commoners here. When you look at the, the fine lot of men we have as our mission. I decided to defend, I would have defended a convent under the same circumstances. I'm always on the losing side, if you like. The minority is more likely to be right than the majority, unfortunately. Anybody who was, was writing anything of a radical nature was a communist. So the animal gang just ran riot and got, got good excuse for acting out again. And this blot on the Irish people would never have taken place because I look upon it as a blot on the Irish people. And even foreign media at that time commented that this was the first time in Western Europe that a hall belonging to a workers' organisation had been attacked and burnt and its associates and members of the particular political grouping threatened with the loss of their lives. Almost coincidental with the Connolly House period incident that Hitler had got, got full powers in Germany and the Jew baiting and the uh, arresting, jailing, etc., communists and social democrats and all radical elements and ordinary democratic elements uh, was operating on a very wide scale. What is the significance of the events in Strand Street? As a result of the disturbances, a number of people were charged with disturbing the peace and some with theft. Charlie Gilmore was charged with possessing a gun and threatening to shoot a civic guard. None of them received jail sentences. Was the attack on 64 Great Strand Street a dirty fight in a back lane to be buried in the dust of history forever? Was it a foreshadowing of the conflict that was to engulf Spain three years later? A foreshadowing of a conflict that has found expression in many countries throughout the world in the 20th century? Has history forgotten Connolly House, or is Connolly House chasing history? <laughs>